Hey guys, this is Stephanie Wallace, and you're listening to Independence Radio, a broadcast of Independence Care System. Independence Radio is a series of conversations with members of the ICS community about issues of health care and independent living for people with disabilities and older adults. My guest today, Dr. Kwame Kitson, is medical director at ICS. Dr. Kitson has been practicing family medicine for over 20 years. I spoke to Dr. Kitson about how to speak with your doctor and get the most out of your visit. Enjoy. We, we're trying to get the pleasant patient to get the most out of their visit. So what, what is the ideal visit? You know, how does that patient look coming in? What well, you know, it's, there's a wide variation of what's ideal and a lot depends on the diagnoses and the history that the patient comes with. But in general, if I were to to generalize, the well-prepared patient is a patient that's going to get more out of their visit than one who's not. And so the question is, what makes you well-prepared? And a lot depends on what's available to you as a patient. So if you're going to a site or a clinic that has, let's say, an electronic health record, um, those electronic health records often have what are called patient portal systems, which allow the patient to actually sign in and see their information on the on the secure browser and also communicate to the provider in between visits and before visits and after visits. And so um, a lot of what we call pre-visit planning can happen electronically. But for those sites that don't have that, um, a good thing to think of is having, let's say, a top three or top five issues that you want to discuss with your provider. And sometimes you might have 20 issues, but, you know, 20 issues can't be handled in the space of yeah. most appointments. Unless you go into someone who can see you for an hour mm-hmm. at a time, which is almost is pretty unlikely now. What is the general, like, around, does, is there a designated time that the doctor spends with a patient, or is there a general? From what I've seen nationally, um, for a routine follow-up visit, it's about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, for an initial visit, it's about 30 minutes. And then what a lot of doctors often do is they'll space out what they need to do over several visits. So we know that we can't handle everything mm-hmm. on one visit. Or they'll actually use the team around them. So the best sites or clinics to go to are those that actually involve a team concept okay. of care. So that means nurses that are on top of a uh, situation, they may actually have... If you have diabetes, a diabetes educator that's available. Um, so a lot of good work can be done in between visits. And then that makes the patient more prepared okay. to uh, during the, the actual visit. And another thing as far as talking to your doctor, a lot of patients feel a little intimidated, you know, talking to your doctor because you, you feel like, uh, well, personally, I've felt, Sometimes a little ashamed, you know, because Mm -hmm. maybe I didn't follow the doctor's orders precisely. You know, I always tell my doctor before we get started, I'm a good woman, but I'm a bad patient. You know, and sometimes you feel a little judged, you know, so is the doctor judging you? Do do you you know what I'm saying? I I think a good doctor is not good at judge. We see a lot of different Mm -hmm. people at different stages of their life, and we see a lot of patients that different stages of literacy as well. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, at a good site, you're going to actually get screened for literacy. 
and health literacy in particular. Mm -hmm. You can be very literate in other areas, but health literacy is a different story, knowing what, you know, different um, medical diagnoses mm -hmm. are. So if I say, you know, congestive heart failure, does that draw a blank stare? And, you know, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes you don't even want to say, Doctor, I don't know what that means. Yes. You know, and sometimes you yes. get you get all of this stuff. The doctor tells you you have this, this, that, 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 and then you you really leave not knowing, just knowing what you knew when you came in. You know, this hurts, and that's it. Well, and you go and you leave, and then you go and you ask somebody else. Well, he said I had congestive heart failure. What mm -hmm. does that mean? You right. Know? So the key is, you know, communication is a two-way street, mm -hmm. and to really effectively communicate, you know, you have to also employ what we call the teach-back method. Mm -hmm where in order for a provider to really know that a, a, a member gets it or a patient gets it, um, we ask the patient or member to repeat back what the most salient or best points of their plan of care are. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then we keep going over that until we know that at least, you know, the top three things are the rebel for speaking the same language. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so what goes on when when I when a patient comes in for a visit? Do you you look at their chart before you see them, right? That is the best on? way to do it. But then also there's something to be said about looking at the chart with the patient. And mm -hmm. so I will do that with the computer screen. We can swivel the screen so that both of us look at, at it together. The patient has a right to view their own chart. Mm -hmm. That's a fundamental right. Okay. And so. When you cross that hurdle successfully as a provider, that you know this is not something to hide, mm -hmm. then you know every the communication starts to open up in a big way, and so um, and then we'll go over together. We'll say, hey, you know, you're you're due for colon cancer screening. <laughs> See, your last uh, colonoscopy was over ten years ago. Um, here are your choices for mm -hmm. colon cancer screening. You can, you know, the best choice is a colonoscopy, but. If you're not unwilling to do that, then there are other choices that are available to you. So we call that shared decision-making. Okay. That's become a big item mm -hmm. in, um, in terms of medical communication recently. Is I, I could sharing. see how it helps uh, the patient feel like they're part of their care. Yes. As opposed to feeling like, here, do this, do that. You're being ordered to do something. Mm -hmm. You know, this helps the patient to feel like they are collaborating with the doctor and and it makes you feel more empowered and for most patients that's what they want but there are still some people that want to be guided also mm -hmm. um, but the first leg in the pathway should be mutual collaboration and then you learn what uh, it's kind of a nuance you know what the a patient or member wants from the relationship from the provider's side now some providers just don't do they just have their dogma and they go and do the How same thing every time that? How do you determine that as a doctor? How do you determine it's like a what your patient... It's, um, you can't do it on the first visit. You get a sense of it after a few visits mm -hmm. on what the best mode of communication is. So, in a way, to be successful as a primary care provider, you have to, um, even as a specialist, you have to be able to play different roles with different patients. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, it's almost like acting, in a way. Mm -hmm where you have to play, you know, sometimes be uh, very nurturing, sometimes very uh, stern in terms of, you know, you've got to follow the, your your medication regimen and or else this could happen or that could happen. So I've, I've found that that's, that 
most people though want to have that mutual collaborative relationship. What is the patient's responsibility in enabling good communication? In an ideal scenario, it would be to be very open and honest, truthful about what's really going on, whether they're able to follow a therapeutic plan or treatment plan, um, whether they have any issues, barriers that might uh, impact them actually doing what's uh, needed. Um, So it's really about being open and honest, not just about taking medications, but what is the reality of uh, out there in terms of them being able to to do what's needed in regards to the care plan. And then having that feedback loop uh, be very rich so that there's a two-way communication rather than a one-way communication. Okay. I have a question. I don't know. Doctors and and I don't know. I, I've never heard a doctor say I don't know. Oh, you know? So, yes, <laughs> that. <laughs> but I felt like... The doctor doesn't know. You know, I've felt it, but I've never heard a doctor say that. And I guess saying I don't know could make your patient feel like, "Mm," you know, but how does a doctor explain to a patient that they don't know without without that patient losing confidence in the doctor? That's a really good question. Um, If you've built up a good collaborative relationship with the patient, it becomes easier to actually indicate that, you know, we are human beings. There, there's going to be a point in time where what you've tried for a patient doesn't work or, or their diagnosis is beyond what you can handle as a, as a provider. And, and that's a point in time where you say, maybe it's time for us to also get a specialist involved in your care. Or there may be specialists that you may have a very rare uh, disorder that, um, that only a few people you know, in New York have the experience of treating. And so perhaps your care would be better served by seeing a, a specialist as well to get a second opinion. It's one of the hardest things that the doctor does because we want to we want to believe that we can treat it all and do it all. But to be truly successful, sometimes you have to kind of let go and get others involved as well for the benefit of the patient because it's all about improving the care for the patient. It's not about anything else other than that. How do doctors feel about their patients getting second opinions. Is there... I'm not sure if I can speak for other doctors, mm-hmm. but I think for a specialist it might be almost insulting. Mm-hmm. For a primary care provider, if a patient comes to me and they say they want a second opinion as to whether they need, let's say, a hip replacement or a knee replacement, I have no trouble sending them for a second opinion. And often, you know, in most cases, a second opinion is going to agree with the first opinion. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it actually helps reinforce the importance of that first opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, where if you didn't offer that second opinion, maybe that person doesn't get what they need. Mm-hmm. I, I always use myself as a reference. A lot of times with me, I can be given a treatment plan or something like that, but if the importance of it is not stressed to me, I start diagnosing myself and becoming my own doctor. I, I don't really need this. I don't really want to do this. I, I, I swear I know everything. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, that, and which well, takes me to another point. Yes. Patients who come in, and, and I'm sure that they're trying to do their best, but sometimes we get a hold of Google, oh. and we really think that we come in there knowing more than you know. You know, sometimes, uh, do you have you ever experienced that? It's quite vexing at, at points in time because... Internet's a great thing in most cases, but 
there's also a lot of bad information out there too. And so it's important to get information from trusted sites, and there are a few of them out there. You know, anything linked to the CDC or the NIH. And what is what is NIH? National Institute of Health. Okay. The CDC is the Centers for Disease Control, or from the New York State Department of Health, okay. or City Department of Health. All that information has been vetted. Most of it is evidence-based as well. Okay. Um, so it's been through a lot of review. And we call it meta-reviews and clinical reviews. They've reviewed hundreds and thousands, sometimes thousands, of different clinical trials throughout the years to determine whether the evidence is there for a certain type of procedure, for a given patient, for a given diagnosis. Um, the United States Preventive Task Force also is a great site uh, to, um, to look at. There's a lot of good, good information, but there's a lot of bad information. And what's most vexing, I think, to a lot of providers is when people come in and almost half of the visit is kind of wasted debunking uh, faulty information. But we appreciate the fact that patients are prepared to talk about these issues. And so that's where like a real informative discussion can happen, where we can kind of redirect people to uh, to better sources of information. Okay. I want to take you to another place. Uh, patients with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times we we find that we go into doctors' offices and they are not prepared mm-hmm. for a person with a disability. Uh, maybe p- patients that use wheelchairs or or have mobility issues. A lot of times you don't find you know you have have tables that you can't get up on, or or things like that. And I think that is sometimes discourages a patient to go to the doctor. And um, do you, is the medical field preparing for? Yeah, unfortunately, it's a, it's a great question you have, and we all thought the American Disabilities Act would solve it all, but. You know, to be a proofer in ADA as an ADA site, you don't necessarily have to have all those things that make a person with disabilities comfortable mm-hmm. in a, um, in, a in that kind of setting. So we're way behind, I think, in terms of of um, addressing those needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and only a few sites across New York, from what I've seen, are ready to let's say do a Pap smear for a patient with chronic spasticity. Right, right, right. Or to have horio lips that can um, help patients onto a table. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the sites do have um, tables that come all the way down to the ground, which and then can come right back up through hydraulics. So that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot more work has to be done, and a lot more action, I think, would help that in terms of activism. You know, so look how much happened when, with the in terms of HIV/AIDS, when we have activists mm-hmm. also agitating for change. So more of that has to happen specifically around those issues of accessing medical care. So medical care rather. So I do acknowledge there is a big, big issue. I don't know how it is in other s- cities or states, mm-hmm. but in New York it's a big issue. Yeah, it it, it really is. You, you I before becoming disabled, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's nothing that you think about. But now as a person with a disability and going to, I'm, I'm really very shocked sometimes when I go into an office and I see that table that's low and easy for me to get on. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, you yeah, know, I feel like it's very special. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, but it, it, it really is. You know, uh, I'm just uh, sorry to interrupt that you. The medical 
feel has to get up on, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, I think also with the Affordable Care Act, that there should have been some provisions put in to also reward those sites that actually have that mm-hmm. ability to help those with disabilities. So we reward people on quality and productivity, but there should also be a reward for uh, being able to help those with disabilities. Yeah, because making things accessible for us does not decrease accessibility for others. So mm-hmm. just make it even and level across the board, you know, mm-hmm. so that we can also be accommodated. But with that, I just want to make our points again. Our main point is the communication between doctor and patient. This is key Mm -hmm. to get the most out of your visit. Are there any other points that you wanted to stress? Well, um, there are a few things. Um, A patient should always feel like they are in charge of their own medical care. Uh, That It really goes goes back to that. Um, You have a right to access your medical records. You have a right to that that's in the bill, patient bill of rights and um, there should be a, in the setting of your discussions with your doctor you should be in a situation where you feel trustful and able to really open up and be honest about your condition if you ever feel like you're not and you can't get past that hurdle it might be time to think about seeing someone else because it's not going to work I mean if if you can't be totally open and honest, mistakes will happen. I, you, you're you're a different kind of doctor. I can. I, I mean, I'm, I'm. You know, really, I've never experienced the uh, humility from a doctor. You know, not that they they're all arrogant or anything like that, mm-hmm. but your 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 demeanor is very warm and inviting and and humble. You know, and that helps. Well, I think it that actually can help prevent a lot of medical errors Mm -hmm. to kind of self-examine what you're doing as a provider and I I would I would say and I'm not I'm not your patient but as a as a patient if I had a doctor with your demeanor it would relax me and help me to be more forth forthcoming with whatever it is because it's such a relaxed you provide Mm -hmm. a relaxed environment I really yeah I have to find a doctor well, like you, Dr. Kitson. We're out there. We're out there. <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, a lot of the newer providers are kind of getting it in terms of that whole communication piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of our doctors that have been around have kind of come to a point where we know that we can do better by communicating better with patients mm-hmm. um, at a level that patients can understand. And then a lot of it also deals with how to to um, talk with patients in an IRO model by going in and um, being very relaxed and humble with the patients. And sometimes that's a lot different than what they've seen in the hospitals. And, and it's and it's very important. I'm mean, really seriously, mm-hmm. especially if I if I have something wrong with me. Yeah. And I'm coming in and I'm sitting in your office. I'm already feeling a little anxious about mm-hmm. something being wrong with me. And then you come in with this gentleness and it's like, okay, you know, I'm able to breathe. I'm able to relax and mm-hmm. tell you exactly what's going on. What's going on with me, it's almost like background noise. Like I've lived with it so long, it's not going to. Yes. But yes. telling you these things might help Open you up understand a new window. and yeah. connect dots, you know, okay, yeah. this is going on, so maybe that's this. And 
mm-hmm. you know, your, your the, the, the right. demeanor means a lot. Well, I tell you, you know, this is a I tell you a secret. Not just you, but everybody else who's okay. listening. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> but almost half of what makes my communication with patients successful is not what I learned in med school, but it's from life experiences. Yeah. I've been working since I was 14 in different jobs, fast food, construction. I've met a different people in different states of, of alertness, <laughs> sobriety. That plays a big role in terms of understanding. And then also I try to understand the cultures of the different patients that I serve. So I have you know, a high number of patients from West Africa, and so I've really made it a point to learn about every single country in West Africa, um, and the same with other countries like Albania and Armenia and, um, and Asian countries. Um, so I think, you know, it's not perfect, but I think the more that you can learn and talk about with patients from different cultures and, and let them know that, um, that it's an open environment, mm-hmm. um, the better relationship you can form with those patients. And that, that learning about different cultures and people's backgrounds, I can see how that plays into the mm-hmm. medical part also because they may have certain practices and their and customs, you know, that gives reason to why something might be going on. Absolutely. Or whatever. Or how they may be able to follow your Right. Cultural awareness mm-hmm. and you know, we actually there are now for the last fifteen years there's been a lot more teaching in medical schools about about that and what different symptoms mean in different cultures. And, um, it's quite uh, quite remarkable, actually. And the more you know, the better you can help yeah. the patient. Yeah, and, and the fact that it goes beyond book learning. Absolutely, that's, it does. That's very yeah. important. It continues. I'm a lifelong learner, so I'm continuing to, to read and to um, learn from my patients that come in. Is there? Do you know if there are any plans, or maybe you could bring up some plans, you know, for, uh, for ICS consumers, and teaching them the best way to communicate with their, you know, the things that we've been talking about here today. I think it would be nice. It would be a nice thing to do. Maybe uh, kind of draft a document from the things that we've talked about today. Mm-hmm. Kind of a quick fact sheet. Yeah, or, be, or even an in-person type of thing, you know. I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to be involved in a focus group. Yeah, absolutely. The only thing I think you would have to worry about is it becoming a... An open doctor's visit, you know. I might have to say I don't know. My elbows hurt. I might have to say I don't know a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. Kwame Kitson, Medical Director of ICS. You have been listening to Independence Radio, a broadcast of Independence Care System, a community-based nonprofit agency serving the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens, and dedicated to supporting older adults and adults with physical disabilities and chronic conditions to live at home and participate fully in community life. To learn more, visit www.ics.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephanie Wallace. You can catch my live talk show, Laid, Love and Intimacy for the Disabled, on Monday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com slash slate. Bye-bye.